0: It's bonus day bingers and what you're about to hear is one of my all-time favorite interviews He's the creator and host of the someone knows something podcast my true crime podcasting hero mr. David Ridgen The internet's full of true crime podcasts more and more are added to the list every day Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming but have no fear. I'm here to help I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. All right,
1: I'm ready here. Uh, usually by this time of day, my voice is shot, and it's kind of getting there. So I apologize; it's a little bit thinner than the regular David Ridgeon voice. But uh,
0: anyway, <laughs> no, that, that's perfectly fine. And I guess that is a that is a good introduction. It leads me to some of my questions. I am uh, I'm joined, as you just heard today, by uh, David Ridgeon. The host of the "Someone Knows Something" podcast, Uh, Dave. First of all, thank you so much for taking time. I know your your schedule is crazy, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me.
1: Oh, no problem at all.
0: And and this is this is a real pleasure for me. All these all these uh, podcasts that we've been doing this season, where we're talking to other podcasters. You know, I've 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 enjoyed all of them. I've got to meet some new people. Uh, But your podcast is one of the very few. When I first when I first discovered true crime podcasts back in in uh, early two thousand fifteen. I listened to Serial, and then I started listening to Someone Knows Something. And your your season one case had me on the edge of my seat for for months.
1: Wow, that's great. No, I, it's uh, it's been a, a pretty interesting journey from when we started this process at CBC. I guess it was 2015. Jesus it feels like so much so much longer ago. But anyway, and it, it, we've just you know each season has uh, has been delivered successfully, I guess, uh, you know, we getting, we're still getting tips. I'm still working on them and, uh, the process seems to be working and the audience seems to be building. So you were part of the early audience and you listened to the Adrian McNaughton case, um, which is great.
0: Yeah. And, and so can we talk a little bit about that? How did you, is your background in radio? Like how, how did you end up with the CBC working on this podcast? So a little bit about your background and Whose idea it was to create the "Someone Knows Something" podcast and what the purpose behind it was. So basically, talk about everything. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's all. Just those couple things.
1: Well, my background is in filmmaking. uh, Although, I mean, at university level, I went to Queens University in Kingston, Ontario, here in Canada. I was doing drama. Actually, I was doing. I was writing plays and directing them, and uh, uh, doing a little bit of acting. But I was also doing film uh, production at Queens. So. Uh, the interest at that time was dramatic film, and uh, I quickly uh, realized that that was a very expensive endeavor. I also had some political aspirations that I think could be expressed better through things like documentary film. So I, I became interested in documentary film as, as the, the mainstay. I, uh, there was a sort of a slight interlude into the teaching uh, experience, teaching at elementary school level. I was actually a teacher for four years. I taught overseas in Lebanon, and I taught in the Arctic, Canadian Arctic, and I taught here in Toronto, high school, all the way down to kindergarten, not kindergarten, but grade, say, three or four, and uh, over in Lebanon, I taught for a year, but I was also making a documentary over there about Palestinian refugees, and teaching just, you know, I just wasn't able, I thought teaching could help uh, uh, support my filmmaking habit, I guess, and uh it just—I just didn't have enough time to actually do what I wanted to do. Mostly, although I enjoyed teaching and I missed the students, my passion at that time and still is really for documentary. So, I left teaching and I went to TV Ontario, which is another public, publicly funded, uh, mostly publicly funded enterprise up here in Ontario. It's a television station. I worked in edu- the educational side um, and did some non-broadcast projects, script writing. And then I got a job at CBC, um, basically making documentaries. I guess it, actually before that, before I, when I left TVO, I actually returned to Lebanon uh, and I went to Israel as well and made a, a documentary about Palestinian refugees uh, in Lebanon who had fled what was to become Israel in 1948 and went to several of the refugee camps working with them. And that documentary took a couple of years. And was pretty successful and based on that documentary i was then uh, offered a job at cbc which is the other the bigger uh, publicly funded broadcaster here in canada canadian broadcasting corporation and i worked there as a documentarian uh, on a show called cbc sunday which was a two-hour current affairs show which dealt with politics and spirituality and kind of anything you wanted to do kind of thing and it was while i was at cbc sunday I guess it was about 2004, uh, I worked on a documentary in Mississippi, which took uh, the, the, civil, the three civil rights workers who were killed by the Klan in 1964, that, uh, that summer down there. Uh, CBC had documented uh, a lot of this, this case, and we had a ton of 16 millimeter film in our archive. And I was asked to go direct this film worked with a producer who had done a lot of work on, on, on this case or on the case of the three civil rights workers and in particular the, the potential for a trial in the case of Edgar Ray Killen. So I did a whole bunch of research what footage did CBC have. Uh, we had tons of this black and white stock and I was looking at it on a steam back in the basement in preparation for my shoot and uh, I found out about another case uh, about two African-Americans Henry D. and Charles Moore, who were also killed by the Klan, the same Klan group that had killed Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, uh, except that these two teenage 19 year olds, African Americans, were killed by this group two months before, uh, and their case hadn't gone anywhere. So I was interested in that case, and I went down to Mississippi in 2004. We did a lot of shooting about the Killen trial, or the potential for a trial in the Killen case. And then I returned to Canada and continued working on the Dean Moore case. So all this under the auspices of CBC Sunday, this current affairs show. So I pitched to CBC Sunday. I got a 10-minute documentary about this this family member. He's going to confront this case of his brother being killed by the Klan in Mississippi. And if you can just give me enough funding to do this, I'll just do a 10-minute film, knowing it was an American film being done for a Canadian broadcaster. It's a ten-minute doc. So I found the brother. Uh, I found Ch- Charles Moore's brother, Thomas Moore, in Colorado, and I said, "Let's go back and look at your brother's case together." Uh, so this is the genesis of me being investigative, basically, uh, and and working with a family member. Let's go back together to Mississippi. We know that there's one of these Klansmen alive who likely killed your brother. Let's go talk to him. Let's go see if we can get some things stirred up. And meanwhile, I told Miss, I told the CBC, "This is a ten-minute film. You know, we're a current affairs show. No problem." Uh, I knew that they weren't going to fund a big project. So, uh, anyway, long story short, I went to Mississippi with Thomas Moore. We discovered another Klansman was was also alive. So there were two Klansmen that had uh, that were still alive that had uh, murdered Charles Moore and Henry D. And um, we over probably if I don't know many many months, probably three years. Altogether, we uh, were able to get that case into court, federal court. And James Ford Steele had to serve three life sentences and died in prison because of it. So it was a successful mission. And it was a mission with a family member. We worked together. I worked with Thomas Moore very closely. We still speak on the phone together. Talked to him last week. And I've been working with him on that case even after it was solved in the courtroom. Uh, he returned to Mississippi in 2011 with me, and he reconciled with the still remaining Klansman who uh, who actually turned on his uh, on his colleague and uh, remained out of jail. So we went to meet that Klansman together, and uh, Thomas had a kind of a reconciliation moment with him. And that's the whole process. That's the beginning from her- learning about a case to helping get it into court to watching the conviction to the family member, you know, seeking for, you know, seeking some kind of reconciliation with the perpetrator right to the very end. So I basically took that model, working with family members to look back at cases that were allegedly cold to, and, and kind of worked it into a more regular process. So after that case, after that film came out, it was very successful. I uh, worked with CBC on several other cases in Canada. I did four other cases here. And then and there's been two arrests out of those cases. And then in 2015, just skipping forward many years, uh, CBC contacted me and said, David, we want you to develop a true crime podcast for us. Um, and I guess, you know, they had seen the success of Serial. Uh, I've actually never really listened to Serial, to unfortunately ears of some of your listeners Uh, i listened probably about 10 minutes of the series but i mean i had come to this since from 2004 i've been working in investigative sort of in the investigative area so when i developed someone knows something it was completely out of what i what had come before from my own experience Um, and that was basically self-taught i was never educated even as a journalist i was never educated as an investigator I just learned by doing and looking for FBI documents and various any kind of little bit of information I could find. I learned how to find them, and it's a good way to learn how to be an investigator just by doing. Uh, working working with Thomas Moore, so so I applied all of those things that I had learned about family and about script writing. Uh, I had I had done some screenwriting. Uh, as well in my past, so I applied all of those things together in developing. Someone knows something. The title I actually coined the title because it's someone knows something is what you hear almost every single case I've ever worked on. It's a phrase that's uttered at least three times or four times in every conversation with police or family members or friends of victims. So I thought it was an apt title, and uh, from there uh, we thought that the first case that I should do should be you know going back to my hometown. Uh, going back to Arm prior because it was one case that had always haunted everybody, and in fact, I knew I knew a lot of people who, growing up who had been on the search for Adrian McNaughton, um, my f- you know brothers and my sister had uh, friends whose family were directly affected by it, and my mother worked with Mrs. McNaughton at the hospital. They were both nurses, so it was a case that was close, and it made sense that that 's a good starting point. So naturally, all those things kind of flowed into the production of season one. And I guess, you know, we're, we're at season six now. Uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question completely, but it's sort of completely, but it gives you some idea of where it came from, I guess.
0: Yeah, very completely. So what's interesting is, so I listened to season three when it was airing of Someone Knows Something, which was the, the investigation of the deaths of Charles Moore and Henry D., uh, with her brother Thomas, I didn't realize, and maybe it was said in that season. I didn't realize. So you had d- done the documentary on that case before you produced season one of "Some Someone Knows Something." Do I have that? Do I have that
1: chronology right? That's right. So that documentary for CBC about someone about uh, the, the Dean Moore case came out just uh, just after uh, James Ford Seal was indicted. So right after he was indicted, suddenly. You know, people at CBC realized that there was a big deal going on and that that film that I had been sort of convincing people to give me money to make suddenly meant something. And they rushed me to get the, again, I rushed myself, to get the documentary finished quickly. So we finished uh, within about a month of the indictment of Seal, which was in Feb- uh, January of uh, 1997. I had the, uh, the film ready to go to air. So in 90, or 97, 2007, 2007, uh, it would have been January 2007 when the indictment happened. So within a month of that or so, uh, I had the documentary ready for CBC to air in 2007. So a lot of what you hear in season three of Someone Knows Something is actually taken from my camera tapes uh, in the field. And um, I've tried to keep it, uh, you know, modern and up to date and, you know, putting things in that I've learned about the case since then. It's kind of like the director's cut, I guess, the the SKS season. But it certainly has a lot more uh, detail in it than I was able to get in a film, which is another amazing uh, thing about the podcast medium, which is it's a completely different kind of medium. It gives you a lot more time to get a lot more detail into things than any other sort of way of content production that I know. So yeah, uh, it was done in 2007, the film. Uh, and then I continued working with Thomas all the way, you know, up until now, I still record the things I do with him. And, you know, we, we go to speaking events together. And, uh, and our story is ev- his story and my story in connection to that case is ever evolving. Um, and that's the same with all the cases I work on, like, I don't really go away, I sort of, you know, I'm in touch with all the families. And uh, I'm still working on all of them. I mean, season one, I think most of the family members and myself for sure are convinced that Adrian's in the lake uh, had an accident there, a tragedy at the lake. Um, And the other cases are all ongoing. Um, In fact, I had a conversation, a good conversation with Hamilton police last week about season two. And there's things going on. And I I can't really talk about it, but um, these things are are ongoing. And also for season four, uh, season
0: five and season six. Yeah, the, you know, I, I'll say that of, of all the, the podcasts that I've listened to, and I've enjoyed all your seasons that I've, that I've caught up, that I've listened to, as well as, you know, other true crime podcasts, I think season three, for those of you listening right now, season three, if someone knows something was probably both the most touching, powerful, and, and I guess I would say satisfying season of a podcast that I've ever listened to. I mean, the, The way it was produced, and the way you uh, you know you're you're side by side with Thomas throughout, and then the conclusion at the end, it was just definitely worth going back to season three to listen to that to that series because it was just it was just absolutely incredibly done.
1: Well, thanks thanks for saying that. It's certainly uh, one of the cases that I've worked on that's affected me and my whole family, and I mean other people I know, and obviously Thomas Moore, um, in ways that are you can't really describe. I think it's an important season. Two for, for all, all the obvious reasons, you know, I, I don't think that white supremacy and, you know, the sort of DNA of white supremacy has gone away anywhere. I think every one of us has uh, has to look at ourselves in the, in, through the lens of that and uh, in North America and elsewhere, not you know, not just the United States. Uh, and you don't have to be in the Klan to be, you know, a problem and to, to have to, you know, realize that whites have to to make some changes and uh i th- i think it's an important season for for lots of reasons including that
0: i i agree 100% and and you mentioned the the reconciliation with thomas and one of the Klansmen. i mean it's just it's it just it's just a very powerful season without without spoiling too much of it for all of you listening definitely check out season 3 of someone knows something as well as the other seasons be real quickly before we get into your season six, which is the case that we're going to, have to be talking about today. You mentioned some of these documentaries, uh, and, and definitely what I'm really interested in is, is that one, that short one you did. Where can people find some of these documentary films that you made? Are they available anywhere? Well, uh, the best place actually is
1: uh, on my website, which is ridgenfilm.com. Uh CBC, I believe, sold the rights to the DVD. Uh, version of someone of, uh, sorry, of Mississippi Cold Case, which is the season three SKS, which is the film I made for CBC, sold the DVD and sort of reproduction rights to that film to some company in Florida, I believe. So I'm not sure how that happened. I think CBC divested itself of an arm of its distribution so that because we're publicly funded or CBC is publicly funded and I think that they you know, funding has been, the strings have been tightened, so they couldn't maintain a distribution arm. And I think that you can actually buy Mississippi Cold Case, No, not connected to me, I make nothing off of that, or CBC, uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you type in Mississippi Cold Case, you'll get the short version of that film, which is not the best version in my opinion, but it is a version. Let me just tap on my keyboard here and make sure of that. Because I get this question a lot. Yeah, there it is 11.99 picture of Thomas Moore that I took of him.
0: Um 11.99 on Amazon.
1: Yeah, 14 ratings, 4 stars. Amazing. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, Mississippi Cold Case. There's a picture of Thomas holding his brother. Oh, it says a film by David Ridge. For some reason there's gunshots on the poster. There were no gunshots in this case, so that I know of. Anyway, there it is 11.99. Uh new. You can get it for 7.99 from some places. Anyway, so that's where you can get it, Amazon.com. That is the short 42-minute current affairs, made-for-TV-hour type version of the film. There's also a feature documentary version of the film, which has never been distributed and never shown anywhere. And that's CBC is still
0: trying to, I guess, figure out what to do with. Oh, well, hopefully, hopefully that will get released at some point because there's a fascinating story.
1: Yeah, I am writing a I'm
0: writing a screenplay about it.
1: And uh, I think CBC is interested in in looking at producing it with a partner in the States.
0: Oh, that'd be that'd be really cool. You know, I, I think it, it, as we're as we're getting into the 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 Donnie It case, one thing it, it's interesting your background in filmmaking, because one of the things that I've always loved about the podcast is the the way you produce it, and I know you're listed as a so I don't know if there's other people mixing and mastering things for you or if you handle all of that, but The way you produce it is different from any other podcast that I've ever listened to. And, I, you know, we try to do that. You kind of you're a fly on the wall or you're going along with the investigator. But the way it's almost you can almost tell there's a filmmaker mindset in there. The way you're capturing it almost B-roll sound where you're getting ambient sounds in the background. You can tell where you're at. You can almost put yourself there. is, Is that something that you put together or is there another team that does all the editing work on it?
1: Well, the the concept of cinematic and and the sort of filmmaker's eye to the production, like I'm the one who records all the field work. I'm the guy, I'm the only person there. So I'm recording and seeing the scene and setting the scene to the script. Uh, And I work with a mixer um, producer named Cecil Fernandez. We work very closely together uh, to put the episodes out. And Cecil is a genius uh, creator. And uh, I, I love working with him. He's got a really great ear. Uh, He, for the material, he understands the show inside out and we work back and forth together in the mixing uh, room after he puts it, puts, sort of assembles it to get it, to get it done. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of field tape that comes back and there's a big team uh, that, that sort of takes that in, ingests it, transcribes it. You know, it's, it's got to be the, one of the most monotonous jobs in the world to sit and listen to my voice for hours on end. But these people <laughs> sit and do it. I mean, they're paid to do it, but they do it. And um, it's uh, it's a lovely, uh, amazing team that CBC has provided to, to help me out with the show. And um, the the transcripts are, you know, 50, 60 pages sometimes, it seems to me. And, and I come back with hours, like I record everything, right? Like I record... Right. Me ruminating about things. There's so much that doesn't get into a piece. I think the ratio must be a hundred to one or something, or hundred and twenty to one. You know, of of minutes to minute uh, that that comes into the that goes into the piece versus what I recorded for it. But that's just you know, it it, tape is cheap uh, to some extent. Document you know, documenting with a microphone is much cheaper than documenting with with a camera. Although you know, digital photography you can pretty much shoot everything too, and I. I tended to do that too when I was in the field, so I transferred that directly to just microphone recording. Because uh, if the camera doesn't see it or the mic doesn't hear it, then you don't have it, right? So, and you can't man, and you can't manufacture it later, and you can't get that moment back. So, I always have to be recording, and basically until almost until I go to bed, uh, and then when I wake up, sometimes even during breakfast, I'm recording. You know, in the new ca- in the new case, season six, I'm constantly eating breakfast with Deborah. Uh, and, have, and, <laughs> yeah. and and talking to her I don't know if you notice some of the conversations are in the hotel breakfast room, but that's when you get those moments you get those documentary thoughts you get those real it's a it's a really authentic moment you know if you do that otherwise it's a it's like can you just say that again please you know it's a it's a retake on, a, on a, or a revision on something that somebody said and I don't like that I, I think the first take is the best take always bar none.
0: Yeah, the most organic and and authentic, uh, we went through that when I was making my my TV show, and the, the producers would, yeah, I learned a little bit from them, but they, every time we were doing an interview, they wouldn't let me into the same room with someone that I was going to be interviewing, because they didn't want to try to recreate me not being an actor, pretending to meet them. Right, and, right. And you got so much more authentic, and, and that's, that's, that's how someone knows something feels. It's all very, very candid, very authentic and organic. So what's your background then? What just quickly, I'll just turn the
1: tables on you. What What is your, where do you come from with your production?
0: A uh, very strange place. I was a fireman uh, and an arson investigator and then a fire chief. And then um, I started podcasting, doing this kind of investigative podcast thing just as a hobby. Uh, and it, I was actually talking about the serial case when I started. And then uh, it, it took off to the point where people were pitching cases to me. Innocence Projects were bringing cases to me. And so I started, you know, learning on the fly as I go, I had no, no, I mean, I had an investigative background from being uh, an arson investigator, but other than that, no law enforcement background, no legal background and no audio production background. And just over five years, you know, we developed the podcast, the podcast got turned into a TV show. And then it's just, it. now this is what I do. And it's, it's sometimes I, I don't know how to answer that question because I'm not exactly sure how I ended up in this strange place I'm in now.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a, the kind of story that I hear all the time, and and I think you know we don't, we're people on Earth. We don't really know why we do what we're doing. I think I think we just kind of do it, and uh, we make up the sort of spaces in between to make it make sense for us. So people's lives are no different, and I, I see that kind of apparent hodgepodge of you know experience and 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 other things, life experience and jobs coming together all the time. And podcasting's a great opportunity for people like you and I, I guess, to, to kind of come forward with some kind of content, you know, and, and I say to, I was talking to some students in Baltimore via, you know, distancing over the Zoom a couple of weeks ago that anybody, you know, you should be taking this opportunity now to make a podcast, because it's not like anybody can cook. I mean, you have to have some skill to, to, to produce this stuff, but it's a great, oper- great time. It's like a golden era for this kind of production. And this kind of storytelling, it's not, podcasting isn't an adjunct. It's not like an extra to a documentary. It's not like, oh, and we're going to do a podcast version later. Podcasting is its own, it's its own thing. It's its own genre. And and I think younger people are positioned perfectly to take advantage of all the uh, equipment and not a lot, basic equipment that they could put together and and tell the stories that they need to tell. So anyway, I'm always interested to, to hear how other people have come to it as well.
0: Yeah, I am too and that's one of the one of the questions why I always ask people that exact same thing cuz it is it's the time of the independent content creator, you know, where we can, you know, anybody can pick up some very basic equipment and can try their hand at making a podcast and telling stories and creating and and I I think it's it's amazing and I've got to, you know, meet some amazing people that are doing this now through this medium and hopefully it just keeps on growing and growing and growing and I think it will. Well,
1: you and I you and I met already didn't we meet at a conference I'm sure yeah we, at CrimeCon. yep yeah I'm sure and so how I t- remind me how that went
0: <laughs> we, uh, we it went with me sort of fanboying uh, <laughs> we were our booths were close to each other and I saw you standing in there um, I think it was the one in New Orleans yeah and I just in went New over Orleans, and introduced sure. myself to you
1: yeah okay now yeah I do remember you uh, but you were you were at a booth right?
0: Right, yeah, I was just right around the corner from you in a booth.
1: Right, okay, yeah, okay. No, I, I remember you. I remember you.
0: Uh no, I was the the big guy covered in tattoos and in a big beard.
1: Yes, no, I remember. I think I have a picture with you. Did you get a picture taken
0: with me? I think so. Yeah, yep. Yeah, okay. All right, so you want to talk about season six? Yes, let's do that. So, so give me kind of the breakdown. Um, the way you guys do your seasons, they're you know they're they're pretty short. They're easy to consume. You know, season six is. It's five episodes, and and you cover a lot of ground in those five episodes. So can you can kind of give us the, I guess the first start would be where, you know, what happened in this case? Uh, we're talking about uh, Donny Azet. What happened to it before his mother ended up reaching out to you and you started to investigate it? Because it's, it's, it was kind of bizarre how how this case went on for so long with no resolution.
1: Yeah, there's lots of cases that, that go on without resolution and that have some, somewhat similar kind of timelines and, and occurrences in them. But Donnie it was a 19-year-old Maryland uh, college student. He disappeared uh, in the spring of 1995. He was on a road trip with a friend. His mother, Deborah, received a phone call from him on Mother's Day. And he seemed troubled, she said, Donnie, on the phone. He, I guess, asked her to send him some money. And then she said she heard a scream and suddenly the phone went blank and she never heard from him again. And then the next thing she received was uh, a ticket in the mail that, um, that said there was a speeding ticket and Donnie didn't appear for his hearing. So, you know, he's got a fine now. So Deborah knew that there was something wrong. She went to the police in Maryland. And they suggested that, you know, due to Donnie's lifestyle, Donnie happened to be gay, that, you know, he probably just left the state and everything's okay. So there was no foul play, basically. They suggested this to her. And that happens a lot. Runaways, you know, a lot of cases get uh, kind of put on the back burner because police say that it's to do with the victim as a runaway and, and we don't need to look at this yet. And that, that continued for a long time. Police kept telling uh, Deborah that there was nothing they could do. They couldn't find anything. And eventually, you know, Deborah did, did some work of her own. She sort of backtracked the ticket that she received, the speeding ticket. She found out that the car that her son was in, um, although he was driving it, her son, D- Donnie was driving the car, uh, it was owned by another person named Shane Gunther at the time, and So she was like, who's Shane Gunther? Uh, And Deborah backtracked using the ticket again uh, and followed uh, the sort of licensing to Mississippi. And she got Shane Gunther's mother on the phone. And from there, she at least found out that Shane was a friend of Donnie's and that they had been together in this car. So uh, that helped her. And some of the things from that conversation came up again later uh, as evidentiary. Uh, that Shane Gunther's mother had had said to to Deborah, so many years have passed, say sixteen years or something like that, have passed, if not more, in the case, and Deborah finally gets a hold of an investigative file or part of the investigative file from a sympathetic police officer in, uh, I believe, in the Baltimore area, and probably within an hour of reading the documentation, Deborah finds that they didn't interview one of the main witnesses to the case Um, stunningly this is after deborah complained that the police weren't doing anything they did uh, the police did a number of case reviews and always came back to deborah saying we've done everything we can we can't see any mistakes we've made in this investigation and within an hour she finds the main mistake you didn't you didn't talk to the person who says they know what happened (laughs) And it's just an incredible, almost an unbelievable story. So, of course, when Deborah came to me and asked me to help her, she told me this story, and it was like, "Well, let's go." You know, <laughs> like you can't say no. You can't say no to that case. And that's the story of season six: is what happened to Donald? Is it? And uh, we go back to Mississippi together, Deborah and I. Uh, I go to Los Angeles. I go to the West Coast and other areas and try to find out and uh, i don't know how much i want to reveal here if people haven't listened to it but um it's an ongoing case and i'm pretty sure i'm going to be putting an update up this episode out soonish i hope and um that's about it i don't know if you have any other questions on that or
0: yeah well so a little bit more of the background was so you know again it was the the 90s and it's interesting that we've we've Throughout this season, we've talked about a lot of different cases, and what keeps a recurring theme keeps coming up is, you know, uh, a homosexual male in the '90s, and how they seem to be kind of back then would be brushed off by their cases would be brushed off by police, very similar to the, to this one. And in in Donnie's case, so he, if I understand right, he he graduated, he was a very sharp kid, graduated from high school, top of his class. What and he enlists in the military and then asked to get out of the military he does and they enlist again and then he had, it admits that he's gay to his CEO so he gets during the don't ask don't tell days he's discharged again and then this when he disappeared this was like a was just like a, a cross country trip he's just trying to just get away almost a vacation
1: yeah I mean he had moved out to California uh, by this time and yeah as you're, you're right he did get out of the military. Uh, through the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and he he kind of decided, I guess he t- did this twice, he tried two two times, and the second time, he said, I've had enough of this, uh, for whatever reason, and just kind of, you know, let it be known that he was gay, and so that he, they had to discharge him. And then after that, he made his way to California, uh, made a new group of friends, including Shane Gunther, and and then the trip that they were taking, Shane wanted to apparently pick up some puppies in Mississippi, and uh, around the Macomb area uh, of Mississippi, which is in the south, sort of southern uh, part of, Mis- of the state, uh, that's, where, that's where Shane had grown up. So he was returning home to pick up some puppies in a small Mazda Miata, and uh, that's the vehicle that they were in. So uh, they went to Mississippi, and then after that, there were a number of other things that came into play. And those things are revealed by this person that nobody had ever spoken to before.
0: And you were the first one on the podcast. That's the first time anyone ever had spoken to him, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the first time anybody had spoken to Kyle Barnes uh, other than uh, Deborah. And uh, actually, sorry, the first time anybody in the media had ever spoken to, to, to Kyle Barnes. Uh, once Deborah discovered him, Kyle was interviewed by the police and, uh, and by the FBI, I believe. And uh, the FBI made some attempts to sort of mobilize Kyle to you know get in touch with with shane gunther and things like that that didn't work out but in terms of publicizing that story and, and interviewing kyle um outside of the investigation i was the first one to do that and deborah i would say would be the first investigator to interview him i think she actually had him on the phone uh within within a few weeks of discovering discovering the information in the file
0: Which was, and she got the file, what, 10 or almost 20 years after the fact?
1: At least. Yeah. I mean, it it was, let's see. So it happened in 95 and she got the file in 2016, so.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, 20, 21 years later, she gets the file and finds that there's this person that no one had interviewed back then. And really it was her, you know, that the police never wanted to do anything. I mean, she did, Deborah did some pretty impressive investigative work herself i mean you touch on it a little bit but you know he makes this call on mother's day from santa monica california and then he disappears she has no idea where she's at but she was the one that what through the the speeding ticket found out that the speeding ticket was in arizona contacts people in arizona to find out what car he was driving and what was it what through the registration of the car they found out the car was registered to someone in Mississippi and that's how then she made it to and, and police weren't doing any of this, right? That was all well, her.
1: that now that's, that's the question. Like
0: there, there is some question as to what, when police interviewed
1: Shane and when police interviewed Sue Gunther, I believe that in, that they actually had interviewed or talked to the Gunthers uh, before Deborah talked to them about it uh, based on the file. So the dates in the file that I received from the police are from Deborah, which is the police file. Um, would indicate that they had called the Gunthers and Shane in particular and gotten a statement before Deborah did. So I don't make it as clear in the podcast because the dates kind of almost don't make sense to some extent. So I'm not sure about the file. So that's why I left it out. I left out the timing of who phoned first. But it doesn't really matter because Deborah found the information on her own. She knew it was important. And her the things that Sue said to her were different than what uh, to some extent than what Sue told police. So those comparisons can be made uh, based on the two calls. So it's still serious,
0: seriously good investigative work on Deborah's part. Now there's there are some developments that that occur during the season, which we'll we'll leave we'll, we'll leave the details out so the listeners can go check it out on season six. But me just kind of doing the looking at the dates of what happened, are, are those, the developments that have come, where were the, started moving the case forward, were those developments due to the work you were doing on the case, or was that stuff that was going on anyway?
1: Uh, well, the, the developments that happened during the podcast are due to us working on it together, Deborah and I, and there's, you know, there's ongoing developments that have come out of that. Now, before the podcast, I worked with Deborah. There had been some work in Mississippi, but the findings that come out of, you know, what happens in Mississippi that you can hear in the podcast are due to the pod, due to me working with Deborah and, you know, and, and the police obviously working on it down there. So it was in, it's in real time. Uh, the podcast, not just sort of documenting what already happened, which is not something I generally do. So the case is still active yeah there's a bunch of stuff that's happened that i can't really talk about but um yeah lots of things are still ongoing in the case uh and i'm still following the case with deborah closely as as closely as i can
0: right and so you know and for you guys listening right now i like i said go listen to it i neither neither david or i mean to be also cloak and dagger and secretive but there's only there's a couple things one that the season's only five episodes long so it's hard to Talk too much about this case without revealing the whole season, uh, and also, as David said, there's there's things happening as you all have heard happen with you know the cases we've worked on, on on our show. Where sometimes there's things that are happening that just have to be kept confidential. But it's it's an absolutely riveting case. It's it's four or five hours uh, that that will be time well spent listening to season six. And Before I get you in any trouble, David, by asking you a bunch of questions you can't answer about six, uh, season six. Before I let you go, I want to just real quick. We you, you brushed on them already, but if we can do, a, we can do a kind of a, a quick rundown of the of your other five seasons and where things are at. You mentioned the the Adrian McNaughton case. Um, you said there's still things going on with that. Do you, is is that one pretty much put to rest and everybody's comfortable that Adrian w- was found in, in or bl- believed that he had that his body was is in the lake somewhere? Or is there anything else still going on with that one?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the podcast did as much as it could in, in terms of a value add on that, on the McNaughton case. I think the family, most of the family that I know of believes that Adrian, there was a tragedy and Adrian had an accident and fell on the lake and drowned. I, I think that that's where that case stands. Uh, I trust the dogs. I trust Kim Cooper and her and her team. And um, there's been nothing to convince me otherwise. Uh, of anything stronger, any other stronger theory. And the lake is a very difficult lake. It's covered in detritus, several different layers of it. I can understand how divers who took two days to cover the whole lake, and we went back several times and couldn't even cover like, you know, 100 meters by 200 meters because of just the way the lake is. So we'd have to drain the lake, use military operations to kind of get that done at an incredible expense and still we wouldn't know if we'd be able to find any remains because of the muck and the removal process and the environmental destruction. So I think that we're at the point where we have to stay uh, a sort of a stopping point in the McNaughton case. Season 2, Cheryl Shepard. Uh, we looked at Cheryl Shepard's murder in Hamilton and the prime suspect, Michael Lavoy, her former, or her fiancé. Uh, that case is ongoing. There are some new developments in that case which actually are quite interesting to me and um, that I will hopefully be able to get into a, an update episode depending on how things uh, go. The third season, of course, is the Mississippi case. Uh, Thomas Moore and I working together to look at uh, the, the murders of Charles Moore and Henry D. Um, that case, uh, we had, there was an arrest, a federal trial, a conviction on three counts uh, of life, life uh, convictions. James Ford Seal went to jail. I followed up with Thomas, and we went back to Mississippi for a reconciliation process. But I'm still working with Thomas, and we're actually writing the screenplay uh, for the dramatic film version of this case uh, together. And uh, that's that's the next stage of of development in the case and and the story. Uh, Thomas and I working together on that season four, uh, the Gravette case. This is a case where uh, Wayne Gravette was delivered a flashlight December 12th uh, 1996 the flashlight came in the form of a Christmas gift with a letter sort of sinister sounding letter which was sinister only in retrospect I guess and the flashlight was actually a bomb so as soon as Wayne flicked the switch after a couple of flicks actually it exploded and killed him instantly in front of his family Um, so that uh, season 4 is, is an attempt to look into some of the details of Wayne's life and where could this bomb have come from. And that case, just recently, as recent as last week, uh, has some new information that, that may be of interest. And again, we have to wait to see what happens with it. And it's something that I'm excited by, but I can't say more about it. Season 5, uh, I just released the update episode uh, for work that I've done on that case. Uh, Carrie Brown killed in Thompson in uh, October 1986. Thompson, Manitoba, sort of northern Canada. And that case always has more, more tips coming in. Uh, and I've looked into some of them. And, and they're they're part of this uh, update episode, which I encourage people to listen to. Um, and I'm still working on that with Trevor. We're still kind of dealing with the aftermath of the recent release and some other information that's come in. And season six, we've just talked about. so. These are all cases that are continuing, except for the McNaughton case. But I still keep in touch with the family. All the other cases, I'm regularly in touch with family members.
0: So after after six seasons of someone knows something, as you said, the, the phrase kind of coined itself. Uh, as you you're bringing these cases to the public's eye and hope to find that person that knows something. Do you do you feel like after six seasons of this that the the project is a success where you you've been able to move the ball forward in every case that you've covered?
1: Oh, absolutely! Every case we've been able to find new information, and I I feel like progress the case. But more importantly, I mean, I'm not really a massive true crime guy. Like I, what I really am interested in is is the sort of healing process of the family members and and the their con- confrontation of the case itself and of the information in it and of their loss and and the community's loss. Those are the things I'm interested in as a metric as well. Like I, I you know, once you're in the courtroom and you get out, you still you still have the loss, your brother's still gone, and you still have that horrible story of how that happened. And to get to the point where you can reconcile with yourself, you kind of have to find the truth first, right? So that's the process I take or work with family members to, to sort of achieve. So it's as important to me what happens with their lives afterwards as to whether the case got into the courtroom or not. And I think in each case, I've seen a positive, a positive, a net positive with family members and and how they've able they're able to sort of relate to the cases uh,
0: going forward in their lives. Well, it's 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 fantastic work that you're doing, and I think it's for the the drive behind it is is admirable. And uh, the last question for you before I let you go, David, is: Do we have a season seven in the works?
1: There is a season seven in the works. It's been put on hold. It's been put on hold for the next uh, little while. Although I'm still kind of working on it. Uh, in as much capacity as I can. It's tough to kind of pull the trigger on something and then slow the bullet down, you know. So I, right. you know, when, once you pull the trigger on certain things, you have to kind of keep going. And I can't get over the border. It happens to be another international uh, case where Canada, USA, and if I pull certain stops out, I have to follow through. And if I can't get over the border, I I screw something up. So I basically can't. I have to keep it in a certain place before you know uh, so that uh, until until vaccines come into play and i can actually more effectively deal with that one but there is a new uh, a new development uh, on a possible new podcast that i'm developing with CBC and i'm not going to announce what it is right now but uh, just know that there's something in the works
0: oh that's great i'm i'm looking forward to hearing both season 7 and whatever this new new podcast project is and, uh, and with that, David, I will let you go. Like I said, I know you're busy, and I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time and looking forward to the release of the, your new projects.
1: Great. Well, thanks very much.
0: please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.